2: I'm in the co-pilot seat of this small Cessna plane, and we're circling the Bolivian Amazon. Beside me, the pilot's sweating, because we're looking for a place to land, and we can't find one.
3: The weather was bad, and, and the pilot was
2: nervous, and it was, it was quite exciting. Behind me is this guy i just met a day ago, this German cacao hunter named Volker Lehmann. Volker looks a bit like the German director Werner Herzog, Sounds like him, too. The more dangerous or tricky the situation gets, the calmer I get. It's 2010, and Folker's letting me tag along as he searches for a holy grail. Wild cacao, the tree that gives us chocolate. Cacao's native to the Amazon, but now it's farmed all over the tropics, mostly in Africa. A few years before our trip, Volker stumbled upon an incredible variety of wild cacao in Bolivia, and he turned it into this mind-blowing chocolate. So now there's a gold rush for these magic beans. And Volker's hope is to stay one step ahead. There's an indigenous group in the forest called the Eurokare. Rumor has it they have a ton of wild cacao to sell. So the plan is, fly in, find a landing strip, take a dugout canoe to the Yurokare village, strike a deal. Below us, the jungle looks otherworldly. The whole thing is steaming, mist rising to form these immense thunderheads. And the thunderheads are dropping ropes of black rain back to the forest. At one point we punch through a storm and water comes spitting through the vents of the plane. I shoot a glance at the pilot like, what? But he just waves me off. It's getting hard to tell what to worry about and what not to worry about. For that, all I can do is count on Volker because he's been navigating the Amazon for 20 years. This part of Bolivia is all rainforest and grasslands. It's also a major cocaine flyway. The rivers are dotted with these homemade landing strips and small planes swoop in, pick up the drugs, and head for Brazil. Those landing strips are super convenient if you need to get into the deep woods quickly, which we do, but it's also super dangerous. Hundreds of people get shot in the Amazon every year for all sorts of reasons. Just being an environmental activist is enough but stumbling upon a cocaine lab, that's one of the surest ways to make it happen. But when you need a landing strip, you need a landing strip. The problem is that it's the rainy season and everything is flooded. The rivers have risen like 30 feet. The trees are in standing water. The ground is gleaming like a mirror. At last, there's a strip near a small cabin on the river but it's really short.
3: The rain uh, swamped part of the landing strip and the landing strip was homemade. No, it's not an official landing strip.
2: The pilot swoops down to get a closer look and he doesn't like what he sees and neither do I. He pulls back up and circles the area, looking for alternatives, but there are no alternatives. The pilot keeps circling back to that original strip like he's trying to psych himself up. And for all I know, We're running low on fuel. Yet Volker's still sitting there like it's another day in the park. And that is making me more nervous. Because I can tell that his appetite for risk is a lot higher than mine. And then, the pilot banks the plane toward that strip. And for a second, I think, well, this must be another reconnaissance run because nobody would, l- oh no, he's going for it right now. The ground is rising in front of us fast. So I grab the handle above the door, tuck my head and brace, and we hit. Actually, hits the wrong word. It's super soft, thanks to all that spongy ground. So we break hard and slam to a stop, spraying puddles. And I'm like, holy shit, we made it. <laughs> So I grab my pack and hop out, Volker's behind me, and it's like, hello, Amazon. It's a cathedral when you're on the ground. There's these massive trees that are dripping thick vines. There's flocks of actual parrots screeching through the canopy. And then, from that little cabin up ahead, four guys emerge, and they're holding rifles.
3: There were like one guy coming, and then the second, and the third, and the fourth, and then they were surrounding us. And I was looking at the pilot and he said, I have to leave because of the weather. And you know, nobody said anything. And so he turned around his plane and off he he went. And then I realized, oh, we are in the middle of some people we don't know.
2: I was nervous. I am trying not to make any fast moves because these guys look twitchy. And everything they say confirms my worst fears. They're watching this place for their boss, who's a Colombian man. And we've just landed on his private runway without permission. And I've been in the Amazon for all five minutes. And I'm starting to wonder if maybe I'm not really cut out for this cacao hunting thing. And all I can do is look over at Volker and think, I hope to hell you got this. From Kaleidoscope and iHeart Podcasts, this is Obsessions Wild Chocolate. I'm Rowan Jacobson. Chapter one, The Hunt. So one thing I should explain is that I'm a food writer, but not a normal food writer. I don't write cookbooks or restaurant reviews. Instead, the thing I do is harder to explain.
1: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block. Listen to how Rowan Jacobson describes a temperamental mollusk.
2: I kind of think of these as the Sean Penn of oysters. (laughs) Like, very intense and memorable, but...
1: You wouldn't want to have him every day. Rowan Jacobson talks about oysters the way a lover might recall his favorite conquests.
2: You have to think about the afterglow. See what I mean? My call is to bring amazing ingredients to life. To use intense sensory experience as a wormhole to jump into a universe of exotic landscapes, diverse traditions, revelations, and obsessions. Back in 2009, I was writing a book about the world's best ingredients and I was working on a chapter about chocolate. Chocolate, of course, is on anybody's short list of great ingredients, as it should be. It's our most complex food. It has more than 600 different flavor components. If you think of flavor as a kind of language, a way the world communicates to us through our senses, then chocolate is like epic poetry. It speaks in these lush rhythmic phrases that sweep over us and sometimes sweep us away. At least good chocolate does. But the stuff you find in your typical candy aisle, that's more brain fart than Epic Poem. There's just not that much chocolate in your average chocolate bar. And the quality is nothing special. Just like great wine requires great grapes, Epic chocolate requires the very best cacao beans. And those are really hard to find. For decades, nobody outside the Amazon was really looking for them. Now that's changed. A new wave of extreme chocolate makers is seeking out the best of the best and using it to make the most intensely delicious chocolate that has ever been made. Chocolate that is so different from what has come before that the experience is like some sort of drug. In 2009, I was tasting my way through these trippy bars for my book, and I kept coming across rumors about the trippiest of them all. Supposedly, it was the first bar in history that wasn't made out of farmed cacao. This one was all wild, sourced from the Amazon rainforest itself, and it tasted like nothing that had come before. Well, summoning all of my journalistic skills, I managed to track down a bar. I had to order it from Switzerland, and it cost me 26 bucks with shipping. But a week later, the FedEx truck dropped the hot little box on my porch, and I tore it open. The bar was cloaked in snazzy Swiss wrapping. I slid off the sleeve and parted the gold foil to reveal a thin plank of chocolate embossed with a feather. I snapped off a shard, placed it on my tongue, and the bottom fell out of the room. It melted like silk, not a trace of bitterness. There were these notes of dried fruit and pipe smoke dancing through my sinuses. It was like finding an old chest in your grandparents' attic and sticking your nose inside and breathing in the centuries. It was delicious for sure, but that was almost beside the point. There was something else going on something metaphysical. I don't really have the word for it. All I can say is, compared to all the chocolate I'd known, this one tasted real. I wanted more of this wild chocolate, this wild experience. And I resolved to find someone who could lead me into this thicket of flavors. What I couldn't have known at the time was that seeking the answers to those questions was going to lead me into the rainforest again and again, in the shadow of lost civilizations and in the company of some extraordinary people obsessed with making God-level chocolate. It was frequently going to leave me soaked, bitten, miserable, and miles from the nearest bed. It was going to expose me to chocolate's dark history of exploitation and environmental destruction, but it was also going to show me cacao's sacred side and how it can be used to protect the rainforest. But on that day in 2009, I just wanted to know if the story was true. If this mythical wild cacao really existed. The chocolate maker said it was being supplied from Bolivia by a man named Volger Lehman, And that's how I met the Herzog of cacao hunting over Skype. Hello. <laughs> hey, hi. When I told him that people I asked had never heard of wild cacao, he just laughed. He said most people in the business have never even seen a cacao tree, much less step foot into the rainforest. Basically, they were idiots, not close to being on his level.
3: I got ahead of the pack. Everybody behind me, you know, uh, still trying to catch me somehow.
2: Not possible. I like the intensity. He seemed to have swagger. He said he was taking a trip into Yuracare territory in search of new sources, so why not come and see for myself?
3: What type of uh, details you want me to send you? Maybe the the plan, the logistics. Yeah, just,
2: the, just yeah, where you want me and when, basically, <laughs> um, and then I'll run it by the podcast people who are interested. Okay, they give you money? Yeah, I'll hopefully they'll. I'll make sure that they can cover my uh, my flights and so on.
3: Yeah and then little money and for the steaks and and beers and
2: <laughs> Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah, I pictured us paddling up a river, joining in wild chocolate ceremonies, rivers of molten deliciousness pouring down our chins. That was the plan anyway. Are there snakes to worry about? Yeah there are. <laughs> Okay, that was a very large crocodile. Which brings me back to that landing strip. We're staring at these twitchy guys with guns, and I know what they're thinking. For two white dudes to drop out of an airplane in this region means one of two things. Either they think we're undercover DEA, or they think we're traffickers. And either way is not good. Seems like that uh, it was close to the weekend
3: and they needed some money to buy food and booze. So I said to myself, okay, they have a need to get money and we have the need to get
2: out of it. So he says, no problem, guys. What's the landing fee? And the guys just look at each other. And finally, one says 5,000 Bolivianos, which is about 750 (laughs) bucks. I'm thinking, oh my God. That's a pretty good deal. We've definitely got enough to swing that. And before I can get there, Volker says, stone faced, sorry, we don't have that much. I said, Look,
3: I'm myself, I'm poor and he, he started looking at me at like, Wow, well, what what a story, you know, mm-hmm. like <laughs> and I said, Okay, no look, um I, I represent a small project and, and we're doing with cacao, we're dealing with the uh, indigenous
2: Yuracare people. I'm listening to Volker's explanation, and I can't tell how persuaded these guys
1: are.
2: Just then, Volker pulls out 500 Bolivianos, which is only 75 bucks, and offers it up. I take a deep breath and watch, and the guy relaxes and takes the money. And then his buddies relax, and suddenly the whole vibe changes. And they invite us to sit down and have a drink. So we were making small talk. He actually wanted to give me as a gift a book. It was a beat-up John Grisham paperback someone had left behind. It was in English, so they had no use for it.
3: And uh, I said, no, keep it. Um, you know, we want to travel light and here's the money. And thank you very much. And uh, see you. There you go.
2: How to win friends and influence people in the Amazon. After paying off our new friends, Volker and I make our way down to the river. Two guys are waiting for us in a long skinny dugout with an outboard on the back. Aurelio has a white gambler hat, a mustache, a cigarette, and a rifle tucked into the bow of the canoe. Full cowboy vibe. In the back of the boat is the pilot, Dante, a big guy with a scruffy beard and a huge wad of coca leaves stuffed into his bulging cheek. We throw our stuff into the middle of the canoe and wedge ourselves in between, trying not to capsize the thing. All right, here goes nothing. Any last words before we launch the voyage? I, I don't. Uh, never have last words. <laughs> this, is, this is not the end? <laughs> no. Want a taste of some of this God-level chocolate? We got you covered. Kaleidoscope has joined forces with Louisa Abram and Stetler Chocolate to make a special box to go along with this very podcast. Taste what has driven many to near madness at www.stetler-chocolate.com.
0: Ready? Okay.
1: at purdueglobal.edu. Chocolate
2: is a Mayan thing. A thousand years before Europeans crossed the Atlantic, the Maya were already growing cacao all over Central America and using it for rituals and ceremonies. Maya people are the first people, known people, to have used it,
4: cultivated, domesticated it. And for us, that is a gift from the heavens above.
2: That's Julio Siqui. He's a Mayan elder I met in Belize. Julio has a chocolate company, but he also does demonstrations of traditional Mayan chocolate making as a way of teaching others what cacao means to his people. We stood in his thatched hut just off the highway while trucks rattled by as he toasted cacao beans over a wooden fire, then ground them between two stones to form a paste. Then he mixed the paste with hot water and whipped the drink into a froth. This is how his mother did it before him, and her mother before her, sharing the drink and burning the beans on an altar.
4: It is, believed. it is our belief that the prayers that we're saying, the thanks that we're saying to the jungle, to the rainforest, to the wind, to the breeze, to the mountains, to the soil, our ancestors would feel it, would take it. And this is what we strongly believe the connection is with between the upper world and the, and the lower world where we are today. So for us, cacao is essential.
2: It's funny, foodies like talking about food being a religious experience. But traditionally, the creation and consumption of chocolate is just that. Needless to say, that was lost on the first European to encounter cacao, a guy named Christopher Columbus. It was August 15th, 1502, and Columbus was on his fourth and final voyage to the New World blown it on the whole passage to India thing. He hadn't found any big stores of gold. His ships were in tatters. And after his last voyage, he'd been carted back to Spain in shackles. He needed a big score. And miraculously, off the coast of Honduras, he got it. A huge mine trading canoe, more than 100 feet long, laden with cloth, axes, war clubs, corn beer, and what looked like almonds. Columbus hauled the Maya and their cargo on board, and when some of those almonds spilled, the Mayan merchants freaked. Columbus's son wrote that they scrambled for them as if their eyeballs had fallen out. Obviously, to the Maya, these weird almonds were precious. If you're a master explorer, desperate to find treasure, wouldn't you go ashore and see if there's any more of these things lying around? If Columbus had, he'd have learned that the eyeballs rolling around his deck were cacao beans and they were the lifeblood of Mayan culture. Everybody had a few trees in their backyard. Some people had whole forests. No wedding or holiday was complete without a round of hot chocolate whipped into a froth with a nice head of foam. The dried beans could last for years, so they were the coin of the realm. According to records from the 1500s, one cacao bean could get you a tamale, three an avocado, four a salamander, and eight a rabbit or a prostitute. Cacao is still used as currency in some places. Julio Saki says that when he was growing up in Belize in the 1970s, cacao was cash.
4: My mom used to send me, and she heard that somebody just got a fresh meat coming in from the jungle. She would send me over to trade, to buy that meat essentially with that half kilo of of cacao beans. And the owner never refuses it. They would say, oh, wow. Yes, 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 here is, here is your meat.
2: The point is, cacao was the sacred heart of Mayan society and Aztec society. The Aztec emperor Montezuma was known to drink 50 cups of chocolate over the course of a single meal. When Spanish conquistadors raided his treasure vaults, they found 960 million cacao beans sitting inside. It was the Fort Knox of the New World, and the Spanish quickly claimed it as their own. Soon, they'd taken over the whole cacao operation, But they never learned to love chocolate until they began pouring sugar into it. Then they introduced it to Europe, and the craze began. Chocolate houses sprang up from England to Austria. They were basically the Starbucks of their day. And the Spanish controlled the entire trade. For all the talk of El Dorado, the real treasure they found was chocolate. For a while, all the cacao in the New World came from traditional varieties that had great flavor. But as demand exploded, supplies got tight. The old orchards just couldn't keep up. So the chocolate industry planted cacao all over the tropics, especially in West Africa, where labor was unfortunately cheapest of all. And the industry planted whatever hybrid varieties produced the highest yields, no matter how they tasted. Because back then, nobody paid extra for flavor. A bean was a bean.
1: There's a saying in West Africa.
2: Mark Christian one of the world's leading chocolate critics.
1: There's no cemetery for cocoa beans, which means it doesn't matter. Every single one of them, we sell them. Because no matter how good or bad they are, Nestle's or whoever, you know, is going to get their hands on them. And then they'll standardize the flavor by smearing it with big vanilla. Maybe it'll go into milk chocolate or whatnot. You know, there are lots of ways to mask it. And they're fine with it because... It's about volume. Volume, but not taste.
2: And that is still true. But now, a few Indiana Jones style cacao hunters, like Volker, are trying something new. They're raising money for expeditions and scouring the jungles for cacao with real flavor. Flavors that have been lost for centuries, or in some cases, new flavors no one has ever tasted before. The funny thing is, This new way of thinking about chocolate is really just the old way of thinking about chocolate. It always was the gold of the forest.
5: We finally got to this city called Boca do Acre, which is mouth of Acre, the Acre River. And it it was dry season, it was August.
2: That's Louisa Abram, the new rock star of wild chocolate. At 22, fresh out of culinary school, She launched her chocolate company and began looking around for a source of fantastic cacao. She heard a rumor that a tiny co-op deep in the Amazon had a stash to sell. So she chartered a skinny boat and made the trip.
5: The river was so dangerous. Oh my gosh, like I've never saw so many trunks and so many like obstacles.
2: Rivers in Amazonia are filled with buried tree trunks just waiting to impale your boat. It can be treacherous. But they made it through the big river. And then they turned down a tiny stream just wide enough for the boat. And they followed it forever.
5: It was six hours in that little like stream. Suddenly you see like this big ass bridge, humongous, if you would. And you're like, something's here.
2: It was a town of 800 people in the middle of the jungle. It was called mapia, which means heaven. And it was a very particular sort of heaven.
5: We had no idea when we got there, they built the co-op to sustain the Santo Daime community.
2: Santo Daime is a religion based in part on ayahuasca, a drink brewed from psychedelic plants that triggers visions and euphoria. It's part Catholicism, part paganism. Its practitioners drink ayahuasca in group rituals that involve chanting and dancing that goes on all night long. They believe the ayahuasca, or daime as they call it, brings the spirit of the divine into them. The forests around Mapia were filled with cacao trees and the beans were one of the community's main sources of income. It was a perfect way to make a little money while leaving the forest intact. Louisa loved the idea of working with wild cacao and using it as a way to support the daime community and to protect their sacred forest. She began making regular visits to the community, slowly learning their ways and winning their trust. But she knew that to really be in sync with them, she needed to experience the ayahuasca.
5: I think for them, it was important that I could see them outside of being a labor force. I could see them as people. I knew that I was going to keep on going there. So I said to one of the leaders in the community, can I be a part of the ceremony tonight? He was so surprised that he invited the whole community, 80 people. And I was afraid, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit afraid, like... If I take this, it's going to mess up my mind for my whole entire life.
2: That night, the people gathered in the church with guitars and drums.
5: The church is not a church that, like, we know with, like, four walls. Nothing like that. It's open. So you can hear the environment.
2: As the night sounds of the forest filtered into the church, everyone lined up to receive communion.
5: It's a thick, drink, almost like a smoothie, and you take it like a shot. And it tastes earthy, bitter. At, at first, you don't feel nothing.
2: And then, it started. I
5: started really feeling different, feeling lighter, feeling happier, feeling more aware of the sounds of the forest. There was this frog making this sound.
2: Everyone is singing, moving rhythm.
5: I'm dancing and closing my eyes and feeling that union with all uh, the women singing and the men playing the guitar. The noises start becoming a sea of colors, different colors and like a brush stroke of like purple, pink, and then green neon, and then light blue. It's just a synesthesia. The waves of color coming towards me and going backwards. And then forty minutes later we take another shot. I took three shots.
2: Hour after hour they keep singing, keep dancing, and the dime is rising within them.
5: It starts becoming like more fluid and you just like feel euphoria, but at the same time you know that Your energy is resignating towards the the person that is by your side and the same with that person. And you're dancing the whole time and you don't feel tired.
2: And then the daime is everywhere, flowing through everyone and everything, merging the people and the animals and the vines and the trees into one unified being.
5: Everyone surrounding you and the forest We were one organism.
2: Afterward, she lay in her hammock, floating in the darkness, and she knew she had been changed forever.
0: Ready? Let's go.
1: at purdueglobal.edu.
2: Here's a confession. There are times on this journey when I've thought, hold on now, what are you people doing? What am I doing? Usually these moments come when I'm hanging in some hammock in the jungle, nursing my bug bites and dreaming about a shower or facing down another dinner of dry fried piranha. Let's face it, this is a crazy way to make a living. Loan sharks on one end, jaguars on the other. And even if you do everything right, you could make better money waiting tables. Sometimes I think cacao is edible gold, and sometimes I think it's fool's gold. But you know what? People keep committing their lives to this, and it has nothing to do with money. So what's the draw? Well, that's an easy one.
5: I remember when
2: I first put the chocolate in my mouth.
5: It was like, it was like a drug.
1: They were like, oh my God.
5: Like, I was just
0: so amazed.
1: This was like, you know, a classic symphony orchestra. When it's really good chocolate like that, the world screeches to a halt and the heavens let loose.
2: kind of crazy that a bunch of crust seeds can do that to you. But like I said, chocolate is epic poetry. It gives voice to the rainforest in a language your senses understand perfectly. I never had a chance to experience the Santa Daime ceremony like Louisa, but the more time I spent chasing chocolate in the Amazon, the more I realized I didn't have to. Cacao, ayahuasca, it was all part of the wellspring, all part of the library of transcendence that this most endangered and mysterious of places still holds.
3: So we took off, and we were just floating on, on, on the river there. The river was quite high and calm. The turtles normally sit on the, on the riverbank, uh, on, on, on a little trunk, and jump in the water when you pass.
2: I'm in a dugout canoe with Volker sitting behind me. We're headed to the Yurikare village, three hours downstream. It's our fixer Aurelio's recommendation. He's been selling to Volker for a while. And when Volker said he was looking for new supplies, Aurelio suggested we meet with the Yurokare. We glide over the brown water, leaving the heat and bugs behind, at least for the moment. Pink river dolphins surface around us with little gasps. At last, I have time to breathe. Around a bend, we come upon a surreal scene. There were
3: people going with canoes into the forest, which were flooded, and tried to get uh, the parts from the trees And so I I saw it and I saw, oh wow, this is a very unusual situation.
2: We pick a couple of pods ourselves and crack them open on the side of the boat and scoop the white pulp into our mouths. It's delicious, sweet and sour, like lemonade. We spit out the raw seeds, which won't taste like chocolate until they get fermented and roasted. Volker's eyes are shining as we pass more boats and trees in the flooded forests. And I start to understand why he's here chasing chocolate why anyone would take on such an impossible challenge. Because this place is unlike anywhere else and he wants to protect it. And in wild cacao, he thinks he's found a way. Dante hands me his coca pouch and I stuff a fistful of leaves into my cheek. And as the alkaloids trickle into my bloodstream, I feel like God just bumped up the pop on my monitor. Thunder rolls over the jungle. Howler monkeys roar in response. And as we melt into the forest, I wedge myself into the bow of the boat, next to Aurelio's rifle, and lean back against the curved wood. Somewhere around the next bend lies revelation, the essence of the Amazon. And I'm not wrong, but be careful what you ask for. Uh, So the rain has just been pounding all night long. And the river is now, the river has reclaimed all the land. Like, there's just water everywhere. There's no dry land to really walk on. We're supposed to head back upriver, and the river's just going to be full of massive trees tearing downstream, Um, and it's going to be moving so fast. I'm not sure the boat's going to be able to do it, but we'll see. This season on Obsessions, Wild Chocolate.
1: Chocolate sort
3: of forms this vortex that sucks you in. I had no idea what this is
1: going to be. And you keep getting deeper, deeper into it. We're lost.
5: What should we do? I can conquer chocolate. Like, I can be the queen of wild chocolate.
1: There's always this risk of complete loss. There
3: was all this money. Yeah, but now there's no more money.
0: Basically, this disgruntled guy and his family surrounded the building armed with machetes.
1: We've heard all sorts of things that, you know, somebody got shot over this and da-da-da-da-da.
0: I don't like guns. But, I mean, you saw the stacks of cash in our office.
3: Sometimes I think all this for a damn bar of
2: chocolate. Wild Chocolate is a Kaleidoscope production with iHeart Podcasts. Hosted and reported by me, Rowan Jacobson, and produced by Shane McKeon at Nice Marmot Media. Edited by Kate Osborne and Mangesh Hadakudor. Sound design and mixing by Soundboard. Original music composition by Spencer Stevenson, a.k.a. Botany. Production help from Vahini Short. From iHeart, our executive producers are Katrina Norvell and Nikki Itor. Special thanks to Laura Mayer, Costas Linos, Oz Wallachin, Aaron Kaufman, Will Pearson, Conal Byrne, Bob Pittman, Daria Daniel, and the team at Statler, who are helping us make a very special chocolate of our own. That's right. We're working with Louisa and others to protect the rainforest and make delicious Amazonian chocolate. Visit www.stetler-chocolate.com to taste it for yourself. That's www.stetler-chocolate.com. And if you want to hear more of this type of content, nothing is more important to the creators here at Kaleidoscope than subscribers, ratings, and reviews. Please spread the love wherever you listen.